I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about Revelation. Uh, I'm sure y'all have done your due diligence uh, and Chris prefacing every service saying that you might want to leave your kind of churchianity uh, at the door, right? Uh, when reading Revelation, uh, this idea of kind of left behind-esque uh, theology that we have, which is not uh, to uh, kind of devalue that uh, because some of us come from those backgrounds, uh, but to say uh, as we read this text that so we might come uh, and try to best understand the book of Revelation uh, and its beautiful, archaic, um, poetic uh, narrative imagery um, that we can best see uh, what, what God is trying to say to us in this space today. Uh, and so uh, let me pray for us and then we can get into it. Uh, Lord, I thank you so much uh, for your goodness and your mercy that uh, follows us all the days of our life. I thank you that this is our Father's world. I thank you for the encouragement that brings, uh, the security that brings. Lord, I pray that as we uh, wrestle together as a gathered community uh, with this text and other texts like it, uh, that we grow and that we be edified and that we leave uh, transformed and changed. Uh, and that we continue to grow in maturity and wisdom in the midst of practicing the ways of Jesus. So, Lord, we thank you, uh, and we love you. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the church said, amen. Amen. Uh, so, uh, one of the things that I do want to say, though, uh, that although I know Chris has done his due diligence and those who have spoken uh, in the Oak Church pulpit, uh, but the hope is that we would understand what apocalyptic literature does. Uh, and so apocalyptic literature uh, is for the unmasking. Uh, and usually it's for the unmasking of a culture or the revealing of something. Uh, and so John, the seer, uh, happens to be revealing the inner workings or the outworkings of what it might look like. Is something on the... Okay, gotcha. I was trying to see what was behind me. Uh, but... The idea of what we're reading today uh, is that it will help us engage in a way uh, that you have to step into the visual world. And so some of us might not be artists, uh, but you must step into the visual world when it comes down to the book of Revelation. Because if you don't, you'll be extra confused, like times 10 confused. It's okay if you laugh and it's okay if you respond. I love that. I actually, actually want to know that human beings are alive in this place this morning. So uh, the idea of apocalyptic literature is to do what? To reveal, to unmask. I love it. Um, and I'm going to read a quote as we get into the text by a guy named Richard Bauckham. He says, thus, it would be a serious mistake to understand the images of Revelation as timeless symbols. Their character conforms to the our contextual, contextually, this is just bad grammar. Uh, that's what the issue is. Uh, the, contextual, the context of Revelation as a letter to the seven churches of Asia. Their resonance in their specific social, political, cultural, and religious world of their first readers need to be understood if their meaning is to be appropriated today. 
They do not create a purely self-contained aesthetic world with no reference outside itself, but intend to relate to the world in which the readers live in order to reform and to redirect the reader's response to that world. However, uh, if the images are not timeless symbols, but relate to the real world, we need to also avoid the opposite mistake of taking them too literally as descriptive of the real world and predicted events in the real world. They are not just a system of codes waiting to be translated into matter-of-fact references to people and events. And once we begin to appreciate their sources and their rich symbolic associations, we realize that they cannot be read either as literal descriptions or as encoded literal descriptions, but must be read for the theological meaning and their power to evoke response. The beauty of formative things that we do as we read scripture, as we come to the table, as we sing worship, is that we leave transformed and changed. That is always the goal, that we might kind of open our Christian imagination to say, man, maybe I might have this wrong, or maybe I might have this right, or maybe I just don't need to care about that right now. The idea of coming to the table is saying, what does it look like for me to be renewed and transformed and come out different than when I came in? So let me read the text that we're going to be in today, and I'm going to jump around a little bit, and so I just want to open up uh, in chapter 10 of Revelation uh, 1 through 4, and I'm reading from the voice translation, so it might be a little bit different. Uh, then I saw another extremely powerful messenger. Should I be clicking this? Okay, it's already on there. I love it. Yes, I can look at that and not have my computer. Uh, then when the... That's not it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> not it at all. Yeah, it's okay. It's, it's fine. Uh, gotcha. I'm just going to read from the computer. <laughs> Don't worry about it, guys. It's community here. We're just going to read from the computer. All right. So then I saw another extremely powerful messenger descending out of heaven. He wore a cloud wrapped around him, and a rainbow was covering his head. His face shone like the sun, and his legs blazed like columns of fire. In his hand, he held a little scroll that had been unrolled. He, had, he placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on dry land. Then he shouted with a voice the sound, and that sounded like a roaring lion. When he cried out, the seven thunders answered with their own rumbling voices. As I was about to record the thunders answer, a voice from heaven stopped me. Seal up all seven thunders have spoken. Do not write it down. As we start, uh, I want us to see the connectedness of Revelation to the rest of the redemptive narrative. Then I saw another powerful messenger descending out of heaven. He wore a cloud wrapped around him. Now, I don't know uh, if any of us kind of we'll look at the biblical themes, but I think Exodus was a huge one, right? It was a long book, and it was a long journey for the Israelites. And what was one of the things that symbolized God's presence? Hey, okay, we got biblical scholars in this thing. What's up? I love it, right? So the cloud, right? 
there's this idea of God's presence, divine presence being there. One, it affirms the powerful messenger to be kind of a divine messenger, right? But then two, it symbolizes God's presence. Now, as we've been reading Revelation, right, you see tons of destruction happening in the midst of this book, right? And it's kind of hard to see that and digest that all the time. Um, This is a reference outside of what my notes have, but uh, there's a show that's called When They See Us. Um, I watched it all the way through. Told that wasn't a great idea. But I was like, I might as well keep going at this point. I'm too in. Let's just do it. But one of the things that I had to realize uh, was that, number one, not everybody's going to want to watch that all the way through, so I can't force everybody to do that. Um, But that I needed something to kind of stop what was going on in my processing because it was overwhelming. And so when we look at uh, what we're, where we are in chapter 10 and 11, we're in kind of an interlude-esque place uh, that John is talking about at this point. And when we talk about God's presence in the midst of destruction, I don't know about you, but that kind of brings comfort to me. That kind of, kind of cuts the overwhelming processing that is happening. And it just enables me to focus and put things in perspective. And so... Going there, let's keep going with that. A rainbow was covering his head. That symbolizes the heavenly space. Uh, so John is, the, John the seer is looking up. His face shone like the sun. This idea of not a literal sun was on his face, but what? The idea of visual imagery it probably was pretty bright. We can say that. Moses came from the mountain. What was he doing? He was shining. Right? It's like, I can't even look at you, Moses. Your face is just so shiny. That was a joke. Um, His legs blaze like columns of fire. Exodus, again, connectivity. As we read the text, people, let's understand that it is connected. It is not disconnected, Uh, especially at the third Sunday of Pentecost, understanding the beauty of Pentecost and the moments of connectivity throughout the text that we have. So when we read this, when we read especially Revelation, we have to have the backdrop of the rest of Scripture. The Old Testament matters. It does, I promise and especially within texts like this. Um, and so, columns of fire, we can say what, that's another exodus could be, right? The cloud of what, and then, uh, okay. You can, you can respond, don't, don't be afraid. <laughs> don't be afraid, please, help me. Yeah, don't be afraid, help me. Uh, we do have some biblical scholars in here. Uh, and so, now I'm gonna go to a latter part in verses nine through 10. Uh, I then went to the messenger, this is nine, and asked him to give me the little scroll. Take it and eat it. Although in your mouth it will be sweet to the taste and sweet as honey, it will become bitter when it reaches your stomach. I took the little scroll from the hand of the messenger and ate it. In my mouth it was sweet like honey, but my stomach, it became bitter after I swallowed it. And so uh, as we read this, we understand that what John is writing down and jotting down to be a prophetic message, uh, to be something that might be sweet as the word of God goes down, but then some some, somewhere in that process, as we digest the scriptures, then it gives us a responsibility to do what? To share that scripture, 
to live out the faith. And that sometimes can be bittersweet. That sometimes can be hard in the midst of community. That sometimes can be hard in the midst of our life when it comes down to a life decision that we have to make that maybe our flesh wants us to do something, uh, but the word and scripture and the spirit is saying otherwise. And when we have that kind of clashing, it can be hard for us. And so when we look at this idea of the prophetic message, when you digest the scriptures, it gives us a responsibility to share rightly and to share with confidence, but also with love and with grace uh, as we walk. And so uh, one of the things that I mentioned earlier uh, is that we're in the midst of an interlude, so it's not going to be as kind of Transformer-esque movie scene, right? Uh, But it's still going to be important. Uh, I don't know if any of you love Michael Jackson in this place. You can raise your hand if you do. Don't be ashamed. Of my, oh my gosh, we okay, it's fine, I'm not going to judge, but Michael Jackson is still the king of pop. Um, my jokes are just not, not doing it this morning. So uh, the idea of an interlude is so awesome and beautiful, but when you listen to kind of nowadays music, right, I sound like a, I sound, I sound very vintage at this moment. <laughs> Like in nowadays music, right? But the idea, right, of interludes have just been lost, right? Like, like nobody does it. Like it's not cool. Like it's not cool to be in a studio booth and go over an interlude by yourself. Like that's not an ideal situation. Um, but what Michael Jackson did, he was like the best at interludes. Like I don't know if you've ever seen his music videos, right? But he has these moments where it's just like he goes to the storyline and he brings you in. And then when you hear the song, sometimes I'm confused at the song and I feel like it has nothing to do with the interlude. But at the same time, it brought me in to want to know what is going to happen next. Or it opened my senses enough to maybe be open to the message that that song is willing to share. Like when we are in the midst of interludes, it ropes us in to want to know more. I love that. Reason being is because I would say what an interlude would be is kind of something that is a pause or a break in action. So when I mentioned when they see us, sometimes some of us need a pause and break in the action to be able to digest, to be able to connect to be able to step back and say, oh, this is actually a connected storyline. Wow. Or this is actually something that I did process and that I did learn from what I've watched or heard. And so as we walk through this interlude, I want us to understand that the overarching interlude between Garden of Eden and Garden City is this. And by Garden City, I mean Revelation 21 and 22. And I think if we're able to understand the beauty of the interlude, then we might just step back and be patient and not kind of force the text to say what it says, say what we want it to say, force, kind of push and and, and really want to go, keep going fast. Sometimes you just got to sit in the midst of a narrative, which is not ideal, but it is what it is. And so as we're in the midst of this, I want us to understand the art of the interlude and the purpose of the interlude is not to 
kind of not give you the message when you want it, right? But the purpose of it is to maybe ask you to pause a little bit and put all the destruction that has happened in Revelation 1 through 9 and put it in perspective and process that. And so as, as, as we walk through this, I want us to be patient. And, and when we look at the pauses in action, let it be something that is not uh, detrimental to us, but something that is really and truly helpful and encouraging. And so um, one of the things that I would like to share uh, this morning uh, is a video that will hopefully give us some perspective. Let me know if I'm doing this right. Yep, didn't do it right. Hey, there we go. Should I press anything else? Cool. Um, so in the Bible, the idea... Okay, so um, the idea of this Bible video uh, is called Heaven and Earth. Uh, and so in the midst of an interlude, I want us to put things back in perspective. Uh, and the story uh, that we're talking about this morning is the idea of Garden of Eden, the Garden City. It's not a disconnected story. One of the most sacred spaces in the biblical context was what? Anybody know? Anybody want to guess? Was it, well, it says the garden? Okay. Okay, that, that's, that is one of the most sacred spaces. Let's see. There we go. Yeah, temple-esque, right? Temple. Because Garden of Eden could, like, this idea of the God space and human space coming together. Like, that is the most sacred space, the holy of holies. And as we understand the Garden of Eden, sin, Garden City, the process of God and human space coming together. Now, some of you are like, that's not exciting. But some of us are like, that's crazy. Right? That's a monumental truth. Like, the idea, like, Pentecost, right? Like, the idea of the spirit living inside of us, oh my gosh, portable Jesus, what's up, right? Like, the, like this is crazy, right? Because we, they looked forward to these moments. They had prophecies for these moments. They said, oh, Joel, right? Joel was like, oh, the spirit's going to be poured out on all creation. This is crazy. And so as we read this text, understand that this is, this is the overarching interlude to the mist of the Garden City that we get to be in one day, right? That we get to, with God, use our gifts and be in his space and he be in our space and that it no longer be separated. And so, watch this with me. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but 
this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible was all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. You are welcome for the imagery of the rebellious Adam and Eve. Uh, Oh my gosh. But you kind of get the picture, right? Um, the purpose of Revelation uh, and the purpose of Scripture uh, is to tell the story of God's space and human space coming together and the inner workings of broken human beings and how we journey our way towards that day. Uh, And I think that's beautiful. Uh, And so as we almost end uh, today in my time with you, uh, what I want is for us to, one, always see the continuity in the midst of the text. When you see interludes in the text, take them seriously. Take your time. You don't need to rush. You need to process. You need to understand, especially a book that is as heavy as Revelation. And then also, like, see the understanding that we are all moving towards this idea of a garden city and that we are all practicing the ways of Jesus and the inner workings of that. And some of us are in the midst of interludes in our life, right? The idea of struggling, we've lost a job, we don't have finances coming through, we maybe have graduated college, uh, we don't know what's next. we maybe have just gotten out of a bad relationship or just gotten out of a relationship, like those things. Somebody might have died in their life. That's a season. That's an interlude to a larger story and a larger narrative. And so I want us to be encouraged to understand that it doesn't stop in the interlude. That's not where you stop. And, and sometimes it might seem like that's a great place to stop and just sit. But just as the disciples did, as they were confused and Jesus was teaching, they woke up every morning and they just said, maybe I'm just crazy enough to take another step and follow this homeless rabbi teaching tons of parables and going on a mountain and speaking with authority that we don't know where it comes from. Like those moments in the midst of interludes are essential for followers of Jesus to keep pushing and keep walking. 
And as I read uh, the last few verses, I just want us to, you can close your eyes if you want to, but I'm just going to read this over us. Uh, And in the midst of all the destruction and in the midst of the interlude, uh, this is uh, chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, that the interlude enables us to look forward to. The seventh messenger sounded his trumpet, and great voices in heaven confessed. The kingdom of the world has given way to the kingdom of our Lord and of his anointed one. He will reign throughout the ages. And here's a little bit of an explanation. When the seventh messenger blows his trumpet, the kingdom of this world comes to an end. The rule and reign in his anointed has arrived in full eclipse to the, rogue, to the rogue kings who rebelled against the creator and mocked his good name. God's kingdom entered our world in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I love how they explain this part. It slipped in almost unnoticed beneath the noses of the powers that be. It grows silently as a seed in the earth until it fills the cosmos. Today, Christians live between the times. We live as aliens and strangers rescued from this present darkness, but we live also as citizens who long for the kingdom that is to come. Until then, we are to seek his kingdom and with him help carve out territories for him. Now verse 16, then the 24 elders who sit before God on their thrones felt prostrate or fell prostrate and worshiped God. I also want us to see the idea of the 24 elders. Everybody, the families here, we're at the table. The elders, the apostles, we're at the table. We give you thanks, Lord. Elder speaking, the all-powerful who is and who was. For you have wielded your great power and you have begun your reign. The nations have raged against you, but your wrath has finally come. It is now time to judge all of the dead, to give a just reward to your servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and all who honor your name, both the small and the great and to destroy those who cause destruction to the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and his covenant chest could be seen within his temple. Lightning flashed all around, noises and thunder rumbled. The earth trembled, and heavy hailstones fell from the sky. In the times that we're living as a black male, I feel as if there's a longing in me to not see other people who look like me, brown, black and brown people, be on the receiving end of injustice. That our brothers and sisters who are refugees, who I work with, that they would not be dehumanized, that they will not be objectified as people we can just send back over that our brothers and sisters that come into a church that might think differently, that might look differently, 
that they will be loved, and a prerequisite wouldn't be church clarity. I pray that there will be a day where the weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is what we honestly feel every day here, right, that we see as human beings, that those days would be done away with in God's space, in human space, again, in the midst of a garden city, would be present. And healing would take place. And the hardships in our life would disappear in the presence of community, in the presence of a table and a feast that will be one of the feasts to remember for the rest of our life. So as we read the book of Revelation, we are in the midst of an interlude in between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of City. But we also look forward to the day where we rejoice at the table with our saints and with our Father. So pray with me. Uh, Lord, I love you. We love you. Enable us today to yearn for your presence, to yearn uh, for your space, to meet this space, and that we would forever be united once again. God, that we would pray much like Jesus, that when we see uh, the polarized culture that we live in, that we would pray that your kingdom come and your will be done. that we would not uh, seek, seek this idea of stability and comfortability uh, that often squeezes the life out of our faith. And that honestly, when we look at America's views at times in our faith, they're very different. And I pray that we, as citizens of heaven, and citizens here, that we live our life in a way that we will practice your ways and that people uh, would be transformed and changed by the way that we live our life, by the way we speak, our generosity, our service. Lord, you are good, and we love you. And in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.